everything from soup to nuts, folks. Come and get it. Welcome one and all to episode 16 of the Laurel and Hardy blogcast, the podcast that explores every film that Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy made together. As usual, I'm Patrick Vasey, the author of the Laurel and Hardy blog and your host for the next hour or so. On the show today, our film in focus is the 1928 silent short From Soup to Nuts. And joining me to discuss this classic picture, we are blessed to welcome back Laurel and Hardy historian, expert and author and the legend that is Randy Scretvet. Randy was, of course, with us uh, on the previous episode where we discussed the finishing touch, but I've asked him back today as I wanted, as part of the discussion of From Soup to Nuts, to also talk about one of its notable supporting players, the wonderful Anita Garvin. Now, Randy was lucky enough to be friends with Anita and interviewed her many times, and I couldn't think of anybody better placed to speak about her than Randy. So stay tuned for all of that. Um, now, it's really great to see so many meetings of Sons of the Desert Tents being held once again after such a long and enforced break. Um, so I was just thinking, if you belong to a tent and you'd like to give a shout-out to your fellow members on a future show uh, and also highlight the fact that you're meeting again and maybe attract some new members, then do feel free to drop me a line, or, or, or even better, you can uh, drop me an MP3 sound file of your message. And I'd love to help you spread the good word. Uh, you can email me at laurelandhardyblog at gmail.com Remember United we stand Divided we fall So let's jump right in and let's get this episode underway From Soup to Nuts was filmed December 27th, 1927 to January 5th, 1928. It was released on March the 24th, 1928. Produced by Hal Roach, directed by Edgar Kennedy, photographed by Len Powers, titles by H.M. Walker. The main cast, Stan Laurel, Oliver Hardy, Anita Garvin, Tiny Sanford, Edna Marion, Dorothy Coburn. Just two days after Christmas 1927, Stan and Babe were back at work on a studio stage and in front of the cameras. In response to their growing success, delivering Laurel and Hardy products to the movie-going public was now a priority for the Roach studio. Just as soon as one picture wrapped, work immediately began on the next. The Stan and Ollie characters clearly became more defined with each film, and in this latest picture from Soup to Nuts, it's evident that Babe Hardy was very close to perfecting his. Here we see Ollie's graceful walk, the panache with which he performs the most mundane of tasks, and his sense of superiority over Stan. It's clear from the outset that Ollie sees himself as the one in charge, stopping Stan from ringing the doorbell as he believes that he himself should be the one to attend to the important things. This blinkered pomposity would be a key feature in the boys' relationship going forward and ensured Ollie is regularly the one on the receiving end of the majority of the team's mishaps. Stan, on the other hand, while showing many of what we might call definitive Stanley traits in this film, still has bouts of volatile behaviour reminiscent of his earlier solo appearances. In one particular scene, we see Stan actually scolding Ollie for falling into a cake and then sending him out of the room as an angry parent might berate a naughty child. He then turns to the dinner guests and bellows at them all to sit down and carry on eating. 
Although this is very enjoyable to watch, it is, from our informed 21st century viewpoint at least, not what we now expect from our slow-thinking and passive Stanley. Unquestionably, however, the most important development contained within the two reels of From Soup to Nuts is one that gives the film a vital place in Laurel and Hardy's history. During the filming of this picture, a crucially important facet of the team's comedy was stumbled upon, almost accidentally, by the man already credited for teaming Stan and Babe in the first place, Leo McCary. This key piece of the jigsaw would prove vital for the act's longevity, and as it later transpired, would be a contributing factor in making them uniquely prepared for the approaching transition to talkies. Some of Babe Hardy's most memorable contributions to this film are his pratfalls into gigantic sloppy cakes. There are three in total, the last of which is the very final scene when Mrs Culpepper smacks Ollie up the face and sends him careering into the cake trolley. It was during the filming of these particular sequences that the penny dropped for McCary. As Wes D. Gehring records in his book, Leo McCary from Marx to McCarthy. Quote, Leo the raconteur later related the incident in his amusingly earthy style. I came in one morning and said, We're all working too fast. We've got to get away from these jerky movements and work at a normal speed. I said, I'll give you an example of what I mean. There's a royal dinner. All the royalty is seated around the table and somebody lets out a fart. Now everybody exchanges a glance. That's all. Everybody died laughing, but I got my point over. He then applied the concept to a particular scene in From Soup to Nuts where Stan and Ollie are hired waiters at a society dinner. Hardy is about to serve a cake but trips and falls headfirst into said cake. McCary shouted, Don't move! Above all, don't move! Stay like that! The cake should burn your face! Thus a new form of comedy, slow slapstick, was born. This crucial strategy is a vital ingredient in what makes Laurel and Hardy so special. Slowing the pace right down to a crawl ensured that each gag could be savoured and in addition the reactions to the gag could be milked for all they were worth. Hal Roach, in an interview with the BBC, described the process thus. When Hardy fell in the mud puddle, you would cut to his expression of disgust. Then you cut to the bewildered Laurel, looking at Hardy in the puddle. Then back to Hardy, so actually you got three laughs, when with a normal comedian you'd only get one. Another element that contributed to Laurel and Hardy's success is enabling the audience to connect with them. They have an effortless ability to win us over, to disarm us and gain our sympathy, and importantly, make us see a little bit of ourselves within them. It's their struggles against authority and the general perils and pitfalls of everyday life that we, the viewers, understand and empathise with. From Soup to Nuts, the boys' 20th film together is a prime example of one of those types of situations. We are informed that Stan and Ollie are experienced waiters and have been sent to work at a swanky society event at the home of the nouveau riche Mr and Mrs Culpepper, played by Tiny Sanford and Anita Garvin. We're also informed, however, that whilst the boys are indeed experienced waiters, their experience has been gained working in railroad eating houses. Despite the fact that they are completely out of their depth, they press on, undeterred, to do the best job they can. Completely unprepared, unequipped and quite simply out of their depth, one has to admire their visible and complete belief in themselves and their abilities. Not for a moment does the possibility of failure or humiliation cross their minds. They've been set a task and they're going to perform that task with grace and dignity and in the end, they'll be successful. <laughs> 
Now, we all know, of course, that they're going to fail. And not only that, it's going to be on an epic scale. And it's this kind of juxtaposition that makes us fall in love with these characters again and again, film after film. We love them for their naive innocence and their unfaltering confidence and belief in themselves and in each other. They will try, they will fail, and they will fall, but they will always get up, dust themselves off, and start all over again. For the third film in a row, the boys are teamed with Edgar Kennedy. In the previous two films, Leave Him Laughing and The Finishing Touch, Kennedy plays a cop constantly frustrated with the dim-witted stupidity of Stan and Ollie. Then, to add a level of humiliation into the bargain, he ends up being either knocked black and blue, being soaked from head to toe, or covered in something very sticky and basically reduced to tears. So for his involvement with From Soup to Nuts, it's perhaps no surprise that he chose to take up a position behind the cameras and well out of harm's way. This picture was Edgar Kennedy's first of two back-to-back attempts at directing Laurel and Hardy comedies, and it has to be said, he made a pretty good fist of it. The film takes place solely at the Culpepper's dinner party and makes the most of the boys' ability to generate maximum comedy out of a very simple situation. There are numerous quality moments during this picture, and as a result, it was selected by filmmaker Robert Youngson for heavy sampling in his 1965 compilation movie, Laurel and Hardy's Laughing Twenties. From Soup to Nuts is arguably most well-known for Anita Garvin's scene where she's pitted, no pun intended, against a worthy adversary, a fruit cocktail. This gag is a reworking of an identical one performed by Stan only a few films and months earlier in the second hundred years. After awkwardly deciding which piece of cutlery to use, Anita ends up chasing a cherry around and out of her fruit bowl with a spoon, and as soon as she finally succeeds in getting it to her lips, her tiara slips from her forehead, covering her eyes and making her drop the fruit. Garvin's performance here is excellent, as is her timing with the falling tiara. This sequence would be dusted off and used for a third and final time in a chump at Oxford in 1938. The entire dinner party sequence, including Stan and Ollie, cast as last-minute stand-in waiters, who succeed in ruining a dinner party, was remade as the first reel of the later feature. The main difference in A Chump at Oxford, however, is that Stan returns to his cross-dressing guise as Agnes the Maid, a la Duck Soup, and another fine mess. From Soup to Nuts is another picture that does not build up to a huge reciprocal destruction finale. Instead, the film works its way to a much quieter climax. Stan is asked by Ollie to bring in the salad, undressed, and after some considerable effort to process this request, followed by a number of puzzled expressions, Stan, in his naive innocence, strips down and proceeds to serve the salad in his underwear. When he's eventually spotted, Ollie attempts to hide his friend, but Mrs Culpepper has also clocked him, and she is furious. The film closes with Ollie getting slapped in the face by Mrs Culpepper, and, adhering to the rule of three see the previous blog on the finishing touch, he is sent hurtling face-first into a massive cake for the third time in the film. The Roach Studio was now turning out and promoting Laurel and Hardy comedies at a rapid rate, and primarily due to the consistently high quality of their pictures, the boys' reputation was growing stronger and stronger. Understandably, theatre owners and operators couldn't get enough as their audiences lapped them up, as these contemporary reviews from various editions of Exhibitors Herald and Moving Picture World ably illustrate. Another good one from this team. Gee, we're glad we bought Metro for 1929. Film condition just a trifle under Metro par, but when the audience roars, we only whisper such things.
That was Screenland Theatre, Nevada. From the Lyric Theatre, Luden, Tennessee, MGM sure has the comedies this year. This one is a real comedy. Kept my crowd laughing from start to finish. Boys, if you haven't got these comedies, get them quick, and you can't go wrong. From the Rex Theatre, Salmon, Idaho, kept house in uproar. Slapsick stuff, which went over good. Metro has the comedies. Overall, the film's concept is simple. The execution from all the plays is outstanding, and it all adds up to an enjoyable 20 minutes or so. It's perhaps fitting, therefore, to leave the last word to Stephen J. Brenner from the New Eagle Theatre, Baltimore, Maryland, reviewing the picture in Exhibitors Herald World, October 27th, 1928. Quote, Laurel Hardy. Without a doubt, this is the best team of laughter producers this screen has ever had. If your patrons don't laugh at this comedy, they better consult their very best doctor. Our special guest today is a voice that will be becoming very familiar to all of you by now, and we are blessed to have had him on the blogcast so often. Um, not only is he a font of knowledge on all things Laurel and Hardy, but he is also a joy to talk to and to listen to. So without further ado, let's welcome back Randy Scretvet. Welcome thank, back, Randy. Thank you, thank you. And uh, well, I hope I'm a joy to listen to, because I, 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 I'm certainly aware of the fact that I do go on. <laughs> So that's why we like I, having you on. I, I I hope I don't annoy people with my lengthy answers, but I will preface this by saying that you you don't get short answers with me because everything that I say happens to spark something else that I remember about the film. So I have to divulge that too while I'm thinking about it. So uh, that's just how these things work. That's why we love having you on, Randy. We don't want short answers. Thank you very much. Good. <laughs> so um. Yeah, From Soup to Nuts is today's film, and really, really excited again to discuss this one, especially, especially, and this is why I've, I've asked you to come back again so soon, Randy, is because I wanted to talk a little bit about Anita Garvin, if we yes. can. Um, and I know uh, you were friends with Anita um, for a number of years, so, uh, you know, who better than to uh, than to talk about uh, the lovely Miss Garvin? So... Um, yeah, uh, if we if we make a start, um, I guess if we if we sort of talk about the film and then maybe come into talking about Anita towards the end, um, mm-hmm. and then we can give we we can dedicate the sort of the second uh, half of the of the of the discussion if that's okay. Okay. Um, so um, yeah, Edgar Kennedy behind the camera on this one. Yes, well, as as I mentioned in our previous discussion about the finishing touch, uh, Edgar of late had been in a couple of Laurel and Hardy films where he suffered. Uh, quite a bit of physical uh, abuse, I guess you would say, in the, in the service of his art, uh, because in Finishing Touch, uh, he has a lot of glue on him and shingles from a roof and uh, takes a number of falls. And prior to that, and leave him laughing while he's standing out there in the middle of uh, Main Street of Culver City uh, with his trousers down uh, and uh, in full view of several motorists and no doubt several uh, authentic Culver City citizens. So it's probably no surprise that he might have asked to be only behind the camera for uh, From Soup to Nuts and the subsequent film, which is Your Darn Tootin'. Uh, both of which are highly capably directed. Uh, it almost makes you wish that he had directed more films with Laurel and Hardy than just those two. But he, these were not his maiden efforts as a director. There was a period of his career in the mid-20s where he was directing more so than acting. 
And, uh, you know, I mean, he goes, he films, he goes back to the early Senate days as an actor. Uh, but then there was a period in the 20s where he was directing as well or directing primarily. And so maybe it was a nice return for him to be uh, in, the, in the role of the director rather than uh, acting. But, uh, and for some reason, uh, I always read as a kid that he was credited as E. Livingston Kennedy. And uh, uh, the main titles which have surfaced don't seem to bear that out. He's, he's billed as Edgar Kennedy. So where E. Livingston came from. I don't know. In fact, I don't even know if Livingston was actually his middle name. I'll have to have to uh, go back and look at that, or or ask Bill Casara. Do you know Bill Casara? Uh, we had Bill Casara on uh, Did you? two episodes ago. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Good. 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 Because uh, he is the uh, the expert on Edgar Kennedy, and uh, yeah, of course, great he uh, he would have been a good guy to do this episode too. So yeah, maybe you talked about that with him. I don't know. But uh, uh, we, yeah, we we covered quite a bit. It was the, the episode we did was just focused on Edgar Kennedy. It was a little special. Oh, good. Like a little good. Bonus good. Episode. Good, good, good. Yeah, yeah good. Because uh, he was a multi-talented guy, and yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was—he uh, boy, talk about somebody who died with his boots on. He was uh, working right up until the time of his death. He died of throat cancer, but uh, doesn't seem to have had any uh, particular market effect on him uh, being able to work. He looks a little bit frail in um, uh, was it unfaithfully yours, the Preston Sturges picture. But he has a brilliant scene in that. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Uh, it, it's it's one of his last, but he has he has a wonderful uh, uh, Preston Sturges gave him a lot of wonderful scenes in that. And his very last movie is a film called My Dream Is Yours, a Doris Day picture, and also one of his few in color. Uh, and uh, uh, he's also in the original a Star Is Born, which is in color. Uh, but uh, he, he's quite prominent in that, and that's his very last film. And he was also making the um, the Average Man uh, two reel comedies at RKO right up until the end, right through 1948. So, uh, yeah, he was only 58 when he died, uh, which which yeah. absolutely uh, amazes me that I'm 62 and I'm four years older than Edgar Kennedy got to be. And I still have my hair, which uh, yes. I, I fully did not anticipate, I guarantee you, when I was a teenager, because my genetic forebears on both sides of my family uh, were much more like Edgar Kennedy uh, in, the, in the realm of having hair. But uh, anyway, the short story is that he was a capable director, and it's proven by his work on From Soup to Nuts, which is a very, very well-made, a very well-crafted comedy. Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, and Len Powers was the cameraman uh, in, instead of George Stevens, I believe, as well. Well, yeah, there were several cameramen at that time. Uh, Art Lloyd was also working there, even though he wasn't working much with Laurel and Hardy at the, at the time. Um, right. There's also a first assistant cameraman who was John McBurney. And I think he might be one of the ones, I can't remember, he might be one of the four guys who's credited on um, Unaccustomed As We Are. Which is a strange. That's a strange credit because there's four cameramen credited on that one. Oh, right. And, okay. And you kind of you kind of go. Well, were they trying to do a three camera setup like I Love Lucy later uh, perfected? You know, uh, trying to do everything all at once with three angles shot at the same time. Uh, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, they, you know, they uh, they did rotate from time to time. Um, Lloyd French was the assistant director on this, and of course, he subsequently became a director for Laurel and Hardy. He directed uh, Busy Bodies and a couple of others, uh, uh, and only lived to be fifty years old. Um, uh, but he was he was the son of uh, um, Louis Alver French, who was the business manager for the Hal Roach Studios. L.A. Oh, okay. uh, French. Everybody around the lot called him Los Angeles French. <laughs> That's Lloyd French's <laughs> dad. 
And uh, right. Hal Roach knew Louis Alver French from the days when Hal Roach was a truck driver because oh, okay. L.A. French was the business manager for the company uh, that, that Hal Roach was working for as a truck driver. And Hal Roach told him, right. if I ever get my own company, I want you to be the guy to, to, to run the business end of it. Well, Brilliant. Hal made good on his promise. Uh, yeah. As he also did for Leo McCary. Leo McCary was working at Universal uh, with Todd Browning, who later rena well, renowned then as a horror director. And uh, uh, they were both members of the Los Angeles Athletic Club, which is still standing. And uh, uh, Hal Roach said, you know, every time I see you, you make me laugh. You know, because Leo McCary had an Irish sense of humor. And he was always cracking jokes. And Hal Roach said, I make my living making people laugh. And if you ever lose your job, you come and see me because I'll bet you can help me make people laugh. Well, sure enough, <laughs> Leo lost his job at Universal and came to see Hal Roach. And Hal Roach said, come on over and did an apprenticeship with Charlie Chase for a few years. Uh, Leo, when, Ch when Chase died, Leo McCary said, everything I know about directing a movie, I owe to Charlie Chase because he taught me everything I know. Oh wow. wow! So that's Great. that's that's pretty yeah. high praise. And then yeah. after a while, um, uh, F. Richard Jones, who had been the supervising director of everything at the studio, uh, left. He left to go make a Douglas Fairbanks picture called The Gaucho, and with yeah. him, he and he took Lupe Velez with him, who yes. was in a starlet at the Howard Studios. So that's how yeah. uh, Leo McCary then became the supervising director at this point of everything. Uh, which which he remained until the time of big business. He quit right after big business because he got an offer to direct features at Pathé. Uh, but uh, anyway, so McCary was involved in this film and uh, Lloyd French, both uh, Laurel and Hardy directors as well as Edgar Kennedy. Uh, and so a lot of talented people. Uh, even though George, yeah. even though George Stevens didn't happen to be on this one, <laughs> no, no, and it's it's funny you should say because I, when I was watching it, there's there's a couple of of tracking shots, yeah, uh, that that I just thought, oh, that's got to be George Stevens because he likes a bit of a tracking shot. Mm. They're a little bit bumpy <laughs> uh, but, too. Yeah, very bumpy. The, 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 the one where you, where we're following Edna Marion all the way through yes. the the dining hall up to the front door. There's a couple that's of little right. hiccups there, and I thought <laughs> I thought, well, you know, what are they rolling on because this is such a long tracking shot. It's almost too long because it, you would see the track that would normally be there for the camera to roll on. Um, you know, even though uh, silent movie cameras were very lightweight and portable, and that's why they're so fluid and can go anywhere. Uh, mm. But uh, still, they do have their their little inconsistencies like that. You know, I mean, that was that was a problem that was really not solved until the 1970s. Because uh, I remember I was a film student in 1976 when Rocky came out. And, and there's a shot, a famous shot of Rocky as he's doing his training. He runs up the steps of the Philadelphia Library. Oh, and, yes. And the camera yes. follows him. And it's absolutely as smooth as can be. And all of us who were film students looked at that shot and we all went, how did they get that? Because that was impossible. You couldn't go up steps with a camera, a 35 millimeter camera, and get a, a shot. You couldn't get, even with a dolly shot, you couldn't get it to be that. So how did they do that? And our instructor said, well, they have this new thing called a gyro cam. And it has a, it, you wear it, basically. You wear the camera, and it's got this gyroscopic thing in it, which keeps the camera level, even though you may be jostling all over the place. And that's how they got the shot. 
And they evidently use that all the, well, I'm sure that things have evolved a lot since 1976, but that was the new innovation back then. So anyway, they didn't have that in 1927 when they did from soup to nuts. They had to have everything on a standard uh, uh, dolly. So uh, they they did what they could. That's, there really are not a lot of, of uh, shots in Laurel and Hardy at all where there's a lot of camera movement. Uh, nor, nor with Buster Keaton. They would much rather just cut and show you a new shot than move within the shot. Uh, if, the, if they do move within the shot, it's for a very specific reason, uh, usually. You know, they, they're just, uh, that just seems to be a hallmark of uh, 1920s silent comedy directing is there's not a lot of, of movement within a shot. It's just if you got to show something new, go to a new shot. And, yeah, uh, I was thinking about, um, is it in Sugar Daddies when they're going down that, um, oh. what do they call them, an astroglide or whatever, that, yeah. the, the big slide, well, and, that, and they're on the slide with them. Yeah, that, well, of course, you, for that, you want the, the, the motion, uh, and that's that's what they call an IMO shot, and an, an, an IMO was a, a small handheld camera, but it was 35 millimeter, but it could hold only a very small amount of film, but, okay. but for special effects shots, it, it's basically like, you know, like a home movie camera. Uh, and you had a guy obviously going <laughs> in front of backwards. them backwards, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and say, okay, I'm going backwards. Now you guys don't fall into me as I get this shot. And yeah. they probably did three or four of those, but that's how they would do that. There's also what they call IMO shots in, um, with love and hisses where they're all supposed to be uh, naked, uh, uh, skinny dipping. Uh, yeah. the, the cameraman had to get into the water with them and shoot that. And, uh, you know, you have to think about that, that the cameraman basically is part of the cast too many times. You know, he's right there with them. That's true. Uh, yeah. uh, I always think particularly of Liberty, where they're up there on the uh, Anjack uh, Fashion Building or the uh, Western Costume Company at the time. And, uh, you know, Thomas Benton Roberts said, you know, the poor cameraman had to, you know, get position to shoot all of that stuff. And he had to be very careful about the flagpole that was up there. <laughs> You know, and you, you didn't you didn't want to fall off there either with your camera. You know, while you were so engrossed in getting the shot. So uh, yeah. So anyway, well, you yeah. Forget about the poor camera. But uh, but uh, yeah. Anyway, there yeah. Though when they do occur, they're rather notable because they are so rare in Laurel and Hardy comedies. Shots yes. that have a tracking in them or camera movement. Yeah, certainly leaps out. Yeah, certainly leaps out. Um, and uh, and just talking about that, the tracking shot at the start. You know. The, we talked last time about this the the set building yeah. at the Roche Studios. That that set is gorgeous. It is. It? it is. It's really really impressive. And also Sugar Daddies too. I was I was noticing again recently the the uh, hotel interior. Uh, yes. And, and you know to the point where uh, I remember reading as a kid in William K. Everson's book, The Films of Laurel and Hardy. Whenever he, there would be sets like these, he would say, "Undoubtedly borrowed from MGM." Well, that's kind of a slap in the face to the yeah. Roach people because, no, they had their own scenery dock. If you've ever seen what they call the Sanborn Fire Insurance Maps, they made for Culver City. They're in Culver City. If you go to Culver City, you can actually see the hard copy. They're, they're aerial views of everything in Culver City, and they were done for fire insurance purposes. And right. for historic purposes, they're wonderful because you can see – uh, year after year after year, the evolution of the Hal Roach Studios as it got more and more built up, as they built right. new stages and as new parts of the studio, you see, uh, in fact, online, I think Pete Schroeder uh, from the Netherlands has put up a, um, a, a website where he shows you with color overlays how things grew from year to year to year. 
Uh, I don't know exactly what I don't know exactly what you Google, but uh, if you just uh, I would say just Hal Roach Studios and then Pete Schroeder's S C H R E U D E R S. That'll probably bring it up for you. Um, but he did it from the San, from the Sanborn Fire Insurance uh, uh, maps. Uh, anyway, um, it was it was not a, a small unit. They had the, the uh, when you see busybodies, when you see all that activity. That's on the Roach lot. That's not yes. location footage. That's that's where they built sets and props. Uh, it was all done in-house. And it's just amazing. Uh, the, the main guy at the time uh, who was in charge of uh, interior set decoration was a guy named Ted Driscoll. Uh, and uh, he worked with various other people. But um, he's one of the uncredited, unsung great people at the Hal Roach Studios. And, and undoubtedly, they were able to reuse... Uh, certain uh, elements of sets. For example, um, in Oliver the Eighth, part of the set there with the staircase is also in Laurel and Hardy murder case. Uh, so they were yes. able to reuse and redress things. But yeah, it, that whole uh, from soup to nuts is a very very ornate uh, interior. And prob I would imagine if you look at um, the Battle of the Century, the part where they're having the party for the Frenchman. Um, you know, any any fancy interior like that, it's probably the same uh, set that you're seeing over and over again. Nevertheless, it's very impressive, and particularly for a short comedy. You know, these were not uh, these were not big budget movies. You know, they were probably at that point made for something like uh, twenty five thousand dollars. You know, but uh, as I think I mentioned in the finishing touch, uh, Hal Roach was now being distributed by MGM, which was had become in a very short time the uh, the top uh, film company in the world and they wanted everything you know do it big do it right give it class was their motto and especially with emphasis on class so even if it was a two real comedy they wanted it to look as ornate as an MGM feature picture and so uh, no doubt there was some MGM money behind those sets <laughs> as as well as Bank of America who were the two primary creditors for Hal Roach uh, but, you know, they are rather astonishing when you see those things. Uh, and uh, even the kitchen set, uh, part of From Soup to Nuts takes place in the kitchen. Yeah. And I was and I was looking at the scene where Ollie, where they first come in and Ollie is making small talk with the maid and Stan pushes him and pushes his derby into the cake batter. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I was saying, look at the tile behind them. Now, see, I'm I'm weird because I look at, at at set direction and things like you know. I've talked to other people who say I didn't notice anything. You know, I say yeah, but sets are ninety five percent of what you see in the movie. You should you know notice them from and especially with Blu Ray now, Blu Ray really brings out all the design and the intricacy of the design in the sets, and you now are able to see a lot of things that we never saw before in prints of movies. Uh, but I was just looking at the tile of that, and I was looking, look at this kitchen set. It isn't in the film all that much, but they've got the stove. They've got the work area for auto-freeze. And, uh, you know, I mean, that alone had to cost a lot of money, you know? That's very true. So yeah, uh, e true. even though it basically takes place on the one set, it's a heck of a set. <laughs> you know, uh, every once in a while, there's one that does look kind of low budget, like they go boom. It looks like a low budget comedy to me, <laughs> yes. you know, because it's pretty much in that bedroom. There are one, some shots where they go into the kitchen there too, but there's not a lot of production value when they go boom. And when I think about that, when I think, well, that's because they wanted to use a, about half again or two thirds again, as much money for the next picture, which was the Hooskow. 
Uh, right. Because yes. the, the Huskow yeah. is shot entirely on location yeah. and is yeah. gorgeous for an early yeah. talkie. It's got crane shots and it's got tracking shots. And for an early talkie shot entirely outdoors, it's really impressive. But it had to cost a lot of money. And you figure, well, okay, you know, they have X money at per season. They and they're, they know they're going to make X number of shorts. And so they can say, well, we can use the same money per short. Or if we really want to go to town on another short, we can scrimp on this one. And I think that's what's ha- what happened with They Go Boom and, and the Hooskow. Boy, I'm going far afield of, from soup to nuts. But anyway. Uh, Keep going. The, Keep going. The, I'm, the, I'm cranking. <laughs> the, the, the end result is that it's a, it's a beautiful picture to look at. Um, yes. Uh, I, I wish that the prints that survived on From Soup to Nuts were all uh, so good to to properly show it off. Um, in the UK, now I have copies of both the uh, the British and the American uh, DVDs, which is primarily what's available on those films now uh, to most people. Um, the British is that the Lost films, the the Lost films of Laurel and Hardy. Is that the well, yes, that the was that American was the American one. series that was done uh, uh, and released by Image. Uh, yeah. f- first on laser discs and also VHS tapes back around 1986, 87, and then subsequently on DVD. And um, the source material on From Soup to Nuts on that is is very much superior. I'm sorry to say to the British one that's the the 21 C- uh, DVD box set that Universal put out. Because uh, I looked at both of them yesterday and I thought, mm, dear, <laughs> you know, yeah. because I I I that was one of the first films I bought on Super 8 from Blackhawk Films in 1968 when I was nine years old and had just discovered them. Uh, um, And I still have that print, and that looks very good, but that's because at that time, the preprint, it was only a 40-year-old movie at that point. (laughs) Yes. I mean, now we're coming up on close to 100 years. So uh, yeah, some, some yeah, the the UK version doesn't look good. Some, it doesn't some, look good at all. Some some preservation or restoration or reclamation work is in is in view for this or is needed for this film uh, before it before it evaporates entirely. But uh, anyway, it, it, in its prime, it looks gorgeous, and uh, so which which accentuates the comedy. Obviously, if you have these two clumsy waiters who are going to upset things, you want what they're upsetting to be. Very lovely and ornate, uh, yes. you know, it, you, you, because it makes it funnier. If it were, if they were just working in a crummy old diner, who cares? <laughs> you know? yeah. The fact yes, that it's, it's that anti-establishment it's, it's, thing, it's isn't a, it? It's an elegant dinner party, and everything is supposed yes. to be just so. And so you have <laughs> these two guys whose only experiences uh, as waiters is in what railroad dining houses they say in the <laughs> whatever right. the yeah. whatever the letter of apology is to Mrs. Culpepper. Uh, you know these the you know we apologize. These two boys were the best we could do on such short notice. Uh, they have experience as waiters. Unfortunately, it's only been in railroad dining houses or something. It conveys the idea that you know, watch out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the lovely thing is, as well as how how Babe is just he he believes he belongs in that environment. Oh, always. the way that he carries himself oh, is just beautiful. Absolutely, he is to the manner born. You yes, know, it's, yes. you know when when we come to the front door, you know I must ring the bell. Pardon me, <laughs> I will represent. It makes you wonder why they're not Hardy and Laurel. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, this is very I mean, true. In terms, in terms of their film relationship, they really should have been. You know, yes, Laurel yes, and Hardy exactly. falls on the tongue a little better than Hardy and Laurel does. And of course, 
the reason it is is because Stan Laurel had been a starring court comedian, which is uh, Oliver Hardy had only been in sport before, so that, that's that's why that is. But maybe Ollie was just being magnanimous because uh, Stan does at one point take his business card. You'll notice there's a part where he's yeah. he's seeing everybody's card there, and he and he he adds theirs, and it says. Laurel and Hardy waiters, all we ask is a chance. <laughs> That's right. I like that. It's, it's so self-effacing, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's lovely. Well, aren't I going with you? I'm afraid not. I'm sorry, but my social position won't permit it. And a great supporting cast as well. I know. We, I know. We'll talk about Anita Garvin shortly, but you know we've got Tanya Sanford, Edna Murray, and Dorothy Coburn, Eleanor Vanderveer, and Buddy the Dog. Yes, who I love. Buddy the Dog, <laughs> whom we will see and hear in Perfect Day. Yes, and 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 Buddy will also be associated with Edgar Kennedy again in that film. Uh, and uh, 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 in fact, at one point in Perfect Day, you you hear Edgar say, "You know, come on, buddy, come on." He's trying to quiet the dog because the dog is. Whoa, That's whoa, right. Whoa, whoa. You know, come on, buddy, come on. So, so uh, oh. uh, Edgar and Buddy had a long working relationship, and uh, I'm trying to remember now if Buddy was the one who was owned by High East. I think so. Uh, yes. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Henry High East, who was an, and it's, it's interesting that they didn't have. A dog like this on the Roach lot because they had Tony Campanero, who was the uh, studio animal trainer, and and they had a lot of animals because they had them all the time for our gang. Uh, but for some reason, they wanted Buddy. He was a special dog, and so Buddy's owner and trainer was Henry East, known as High, and uh, he had special ties to the slapstick comedy community because he was married to Gail Henry. Now, Gail Henry was really the model for olive oil. Uh, she was tall oh, and wow. lanky and skinny and yeah. kind of gawky looking. Uh, and she was a starring comedian in the early 20s. Uh, Richard Courier worked with him before working at the Hal Roach lot. Um, Buddy is also in the Charlie Chase comedy uh, Mighty Like a Moose. You can see him prominently right. in that one. And uh, they, uh, uh, Henry and Gail, uh, or uh, the the Easts, had their own uh, two-acre kennel uh, in Hollywood, and uh, they also owned a wire-haired terrier named Skippy, who became Asta in the MGM Thin Man series. So, uh, ah. if you know that series, uh, Asta is very prominent. I imagine there was a succession of Astas over the the sixteen <laughs> years that they made those pictures. Uh, but yeah. uh, but in any event, whatever Asta there was would have been courtesy of the same people who gave us Buddy. So, uh, ah, right. you know that was. And wasn't Buddy in Bacon Grabbers as well? Is, is he the little dog in Bacon Grabbers that attacks all these um, braces, as we call them, or suspenders? I think is it. Oh, ah. uh, oh, yeah, that's right. That's that. There there are really two and a half dogs in Bacon grabbers aren't there <laughs> yeah there's there right. interesting there is the big dog that's supposed to be vicious which yeah. which is owned by another buddy a young man by the name of buddy moore uh, a okay. nine-year-old boy that was when when i was redoing my laurel and hardy book that was one of my primary objectives was to identify that boy because right. because he's prominent in bacon grabbers and the next picture is angora love and he's the one who discovers that the goat is missing Oh, right. And I said, and I, I, said, I, said I gotta find that kid. And the gods smiled on me because at USC there was one special page just for bacon grabbers, which identified everybody in the cast. And that's how I was able I to find him. And Brilliant. subsequently found out his whole biography and everything else. So anyway, there's another buddy in the Laurel and Hardy world. Uh, and yes, uh -huh. I think I think you're right. I think Buddy may be the dog. I'll have to go back and look at my notes for that. But there's the the big dog. 
the little dog that, that attacks all these uh, suspenders or braces. And then there's the, the, the toy dog uh, that Edgar yeah. Kennedy has, <laughs> which, yes. which is also in an, in an, our gang comedy somewhere too. So, <laughs> so yes, we have a lot of interesting dogs in the world of Laurel and Hardy. There's laughing gravy, of course, and, uh, and the, and Buck the St. Bernard in Swiss miss. Uh, so <laughs> I do. I do love a, a, a nice dog in a film. Yes, and uh, and Dorothy Coburn is also in from Soup to Nuts. Maybe not as prominently as she had been in the Finishing Touch, but yes. but speaking of Buddy, she has a nice moment. Uh, maybe maybe <laughs> she didn't appreciate the moment, but there's a moment where Buddy has the banana in his mouth and he's under the dining room table and he crawls in between Dorothy Burns calves dorothy coburn's calves, yes. and she thinks that the gentleman she thinks that i think it's tiny sanford is sitting next to her and she <laughs> elbows him and she says be a gentleman and tiny of course has no idea what she's talking about but she's feeling this yeah. strange sensation underneath her yeah so god only knows what was going on he was playing footsie uh, with her to some ex extreme degree or something um, yes, and, and, right. and another, there, there's some odd things in from soup to nuts you wonder why a dog is so attached to bananas I don't know. I don't know of dogs being particularly fond of bananas, or maybe they might even be toxic to dogs. There are certain things, you know, you don't want to feed them onions or chocolate. Uh, you know, I don't know if that banana is good for a dog, but he's he's certainly very adept at placing that banana peel uh, right where it needs to be. <laughs> and, and this is also one of the rare instances where Laurel and Hardy, or really anybody, does a slip on the banana peel gag, you know, I mean, that's such a yeah. cliche about slapstick comedy is, you know, Oh, yes. put on the banana peel comedy. Well, this actually has it three times, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. uh, uh, I remember, uh, when we first, when Richard Bann and I first met Richard Courier, who edited this film, uh, we, Richard said, was there a house style at the Hal Roach studios? Was there any sort of studio dictum as to how things should be edited? And he said, well, the only thing was, and he said, it wasn't like anything that came down from Hal. It was just, we just knew it. He says, you always let the audience in on something before you let the characters in on it. Right. And, yeah. you know, especially in Laurel and Hardy. And you really see that in this film. You really see them planting gags so that, yes. so that the, the laugh is not of surprise. The laugh is of anticipation. And then yeah. the laugh is that, that you're, what you thought was going to happen happens, you know. They don't, they don't pull a switcheroo on you. It's, it's it's just what you knew was going to happen. It's inevitable. And and the way Richard Courier illustrated it was he says, well, he says, you know, you see a guy who's carrying a big bunch of bundles, and then you see somebody come in and drop a banana peel on the sidewalk. He says, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with those two elements in play, that this yeah. guy with the bundles is going to come in and do 108, what they called 108, which was a, a, a fall where you do a backward somersault before you fall on your back. He says, he, yeah. this, that guy with the bundles is going to do 108 off that banana. <laughs> yeah. says, and we always planted it so that the audience knew it before the guy did. We didn't surprise anybody with it. So you have that literally happening in From Soup to Nuts three times. So, so yeah, that's the, the suspension of disbelief number one is the dog carrying the banana peel everywhere. <laughs> or Laurel and Hardy having fallen, not throwing it somewhere safe, but always just tossing it where it's likely to cause uh, problems again, which, of course, it does. Now, the, the other major suspension of disbelief for this movie is Ollie and the Cakes. Ollie <laughs> falls into a gigantic 
a birthday celebration cake, some sort of outsized cake anyway, three times in this yeah. movie. Now, yeah. this movie faithfully follows the comedy rule of three. That's well established. Is it something's funny? It, it has a yeah. nice sym symmetrical balance to it. If you do it yes. once at the beginning of the film, once in the middle, and then for your wrap up, oh, here it comes again. Boom, there's here your finale. And that's <laughs> what they do in From Soup to Nuts, which no doesn't really finish. You know, there's no real finish in the movie, but 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 that that third element, uh, that third shoe falling, if you will, is so satisfying that it works as the ending. But 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 here's the thing: is that where is Ollie finding a shower? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, in he, all those clothes, he, he gets so much <laughs> cake frosting and filling all over him when he falls. He doesn't just fall on his face; he falls full bodied into this gigantic cake. He's got cake all over him, and you just go, "Where is he finding a shower? And where is he finding extra suits?" Uh, <laughs> yeah. that are so immaculate all over again, four minutes after the last time he fell into the cake. And also, where are they getting all those cakes? I, I mean, I, I, I know auto-freeze is there and there's a kitchen, but you can't bake a cake in four minutes, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. they have, you know, in case of, you know, calamity, here are extra cakes, you know, break glass in, in case of cake, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's because, of course, it's the, the goddamn prop man putting them that's right. That's the Carl, the Carl Harbaugh, the Carl Harbaugh School of Logic. Is that it's it's funny? That's why it's there. Yeah, logic be damned. It's funny. Yeah, good old, it is good old Carl it Harbaugh. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a story that Frank Butler told uh, John McCabe. Uh, the, the, and and I, I have a beautiful eight by ten portrait of Carl Harbaugh. So whenever I look at that, I remember that that quote. <laughs> And uh, and I think Charles Barr writes about that rule of three. Uh, and ah. in fact, the finishing touch. I think I mentioned that in my finishing touch blog. Um, Ollie goes up that ramp three times and falls in uh -huh. the thing, you know. And and Edgar Kennedy gets uh, um, something on him, th yeah, three th yeah. three times. Yeah, and, 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 they, and don't they do the nail gag also? Ollie yes. swallowing the nails yeah. three times. Yeah, three times. Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's right. Yeah, and you can do it as many times as you want, but don't do it any more than three. Yes, and that's, that's un right. and unfortunately, that's right. that is a rule that Charlie Chase neglected. If you ever see a movie called Min uh, *Midsummer Mush*, uh, right. uh, there's a gag where Charlie keeps falling. He's got a Boy Scout troop with him, and he keeps falling into a stream. Well, three is fine, but I think he literally falls into it 19 times in this movie. Oh wow! You know, and you know, by the <laughs> sixth time, you're going, Charlie, Uncle, Uncle, we got it. You know, okay. And, and he doesn't even bother to get himself all cleaned up again before he does the fall, you see. And <laughs> if you're already sopping wet, it doesn't make any it, – it's not funny if you're falling again. The, the whole point of it is that uh, I'm clean again. You know, th and this, yes, happens, this, right. help, this happens in Helpmates also, you know, with, yeah. with, the, yes, with the succession yeah. of suits, the different suits that Ollie yeah. puts on. You know, I'm, right. I'm freshly showered and bathed. I'm putting on the perfume and humming. I've got my beautiful little <laughs> white hat and my white slacks. And I'm coming in, now I do the trip over the, the carpet sweeper into the dishes and then the suit and the flour and everything else. Now I've got to go shower again. Now here's suit yeah. number two, you know, my standard black <laughs> suit. And then I get that all wet. And so yeah. I have to go back and find you know, whatever else I've got, which is my my uh, uh, old Lodge Brothers uh, suit with the scabbard and everything else, you know. <laughs> that's <laughs> but that's, the, again, comedy rule of three, you see. Do you realize that this is the only suit that I've got left? 
It's enough to make a man burst out crying. Shut up and get this mess cleaned up. Do you know that my wife will be home at noon? Say, what do you think I am, Cinderella? If I had any sense, I'd walk out on you. Well, it's a good thing you haven't any sense. It certainly is. And the other thing as well, just just talking about the the banana skin and, and the cakes, is um, you know we were saying that they, they sort of telegraph the gag by showing the audience the the, the, um, the banana skin, yeah. and then we have a twist on it in this one because Stan's also sees it in advance and hides his eyes. Yes, oh yeah, oh yeah, he's he's the audience's representative there, isn't he? That's it. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and he too falls on it, doesn't he? At one point, I think he falls, and then that's the, uh, when he's behind and then does the scissors kick and everything. Uh, yeah, I don't know if he's. Yeah, he might slip on that, or he trips over the the hearth. I can't remember, but he's. Yeah, he's certainly in there's, the vicinity. There's, of the, there's of the something that skin. makes him very angry at Tiny Sanford and causes their little fracas. You know where that's Tiny right. pulls back. He's about to punch him, and Stan just goes wham. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like he does uh, to uh, Harry Woods in uh, Blockheads. You know, Blockheads, uh, yeah, Tommy Bond's father. You know, he's about to say you. You know, boom. You know, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> he, but that is, I mean, of course, that little that little segment is the, is the bit where. Stan is not Stanley. Yeah, if that makes sense, he, he, he's a little bit of aggro mongerness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> still, still a little more aggressive than we would think uh, later on. In fact, more so than you ever see uh, in the previous film, in uh, Finishing Touch. Uh, yeah, yeah that, definitely. That, it is interesting. Well, you know, there were still these rough edges that were still yet to be refined uh, completely, uh, because once again, this is what their eighth picture uh, after uh, the uh, the second hundred years. So, you know, you can't expect them to have been entire. In fact, I don't think Laurel and Hardy were entirely fully formed until 1931 or thereabouts, really. I think sound added a lot of, of depth and a lot of uh, 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 delicacy to their characters, uh, m- more so than they were able to convey in silent films, although they certainly do convey a lot of nuance and delicacy and character uh in in silent is far more than any other comedians of that time besides maybe chaplin or keaton um but certainly more than the standard two real uh comedians were doing you know they they took one thing is they took their time uh they weren't concerned about getting a laugh every five seconds you know their comedy did not have to be slam bang uh, fast it was just whatever the gag needs will take the time and 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 character above gags you know that was the emphasis. That's actually that's a really good, uh, really good link because I know th- this this was the film where uh, Leo McCary sort of discovered that the, the pacing, the slower pacing uh, from from reading about it, and it, it, he where where Ollie falls into the cake and McCary shouts yes. out, "Stop! Stop right yeah, there! Yeah. Just wait! Yeah, yeah, you know, don't 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 do anything. Let let the laugh wash over you. you yeah, know, that's because it. because yeah. they're laughing. Don't don't interrupt it. Yeah, yeah." You yeah, know, if, it's, if, it's a real crucial point. If, if 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 we need to tighten it, we can do that later in the editing. But but let's let's let the footage uh, play out. Let's let it have its time. Yeah, and and not only that, but um, reaction shots. That was one thing that Hal Roach was very keen about. Was that he says you you do the gag with Laurel and Hardy, but that didn't get the laugh so much as the reaction of Hardy, and then the reaction of Stan to the reaction of Hardy, and then the reaction back of Hardy. He said, you know, that's that's what got the laugh and that's what was human. You know, that's that's what conveyed the character was 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 not just what happened. But look how I feel after it happened. And and don't you and and Ollie saying, don't you and the audience also 
understand what this is like and haven't you felt like this? Uh, I mean, those looks to the camera are so crucial to uh, our empathy with Laurel and Hardy. And I think it's a key reason why we love them so much as opposed to other comedians who don't know that we're there. You know, yes, absolutely. Ollie, Ollie not only knows that we're there, we're really his only friends in the world. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. we understand him even more than Stan does and certainly more than any of his on-screen wives do. You know, yes. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, you know, Ollie knows that we can always understand him and empathize with him. You know, we will never uh, uh, not go through what he's going through. Uh, and, and that's absolutely of key importance to Laurel and Hardy. Mm. 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 Yeah, I love the I love those looks. I don't think I don't think he does any in this particular film, but where something happens to him, or, or Stan points it out, and he looks, and then he looks towards and, and he nods. Yeah, that, that's exactly what's just happened. Yeah, well, it, really... it, it, after, after the first time after he falls in the cake, he just sort of sits there and and looks <laughs> at us for a moment before he begins very slowly the messy process of scraping all of his stuff off of him which is probably yeah. even more impre- unpleasant than the physical fall itself was you know just this this goo all over you you know <laughs> and then he's got to pick the cake up off the floor and very embarrassedly go off back to the kitchen <laughs> I think that's that's I, he that's his most embarrassing moment. Stan's most embarrassing moment, of course, is when he has to serve the salad undressed and, <laughs> and misinterprets it. You know, which of course they later reworked in a chump at Oxford. What kind of a joint is this? What's the matter? He wants me to serve the salad undressed. Well, if he wants the salad undressed, that's the way he'll have it. Go get the salad. I always wonder how that plays in in uh, non English speaking countries. You know, is there a way to convey that uh, this that same play on words and have it mean the same thing? Because you know, in 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 English, dressing is goop that you put on lettuce, <laughs> as as well as things that you wear outside. So it works for English speaking countries, but. Uh, uh, Anyway, and it's also funny that they never do get around to serving a main course. You know, you wonder, <laughs> you wonder what it would have been because they, they serve the fruit cocktail. Uh, they serve the soup, this rather gluey looking soup uh, from this terrine. And you wonder how much soup they had because Stan seems to spill most of it on Ollie's shoe. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but they do somehow manage to get served their soup along with their fruit cocktail. And then Stan is in the middle of serving the salad when all chaos breaks loose, you see. Uh, so, and then he just slaps a piece of lettuce. Yeah, he just to, has you know, a bowl of lettuce. <laughs> just, here you go. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> it's really good. No, uh, no, oh, no really tongs good. in play here. No. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do have, well, we have Sam Lufkin. We have Eleanor Vanderveer, who, who made a career of playing uh, society matrons as a dress extra in scenes such as this. That's really her stock in trade. Uh, it's very rare that Eleanor Vanderveer had any dialogue, but there is a uh, an our gang comedy called Washy Irony, where she is the mother of uh, young, um, oh, I think the boy's name in the film is Waldo. I'm trying to remember the name of the actor now, which is escaping me. But she has a, a prominent role in that, so you get to hear what she sounded like. Uh, but, but she was really a, a 
address extra and she proved to be a good actress because there was absolutely no opulence whatsoever in her personal background she came from a poor she came from a poor family and she married this crusading lawyer who uh, was always working on the behalf of people who couldn't pay for a lawyer so consequently they had no money either <laughs> but but they had a daughter named barbara and finally in 1923 eleanor said i've had enough of this you know a, a grandiose gesture of uh, helping all these poor people, I've got to support my daughter somehow. And so she she left Mr. Vanderveer. She had a friend who was working in pictures. And the friend said, come out to Hollywood. You're a good type. You know, you won't be a star, but you'll work every day because they need people like you. And she says, also, buy a couple of good dresses because if you can supply your own dresses, they pay you more. Oh, right. That was always the, the, the case with extras. If you could bring your own costume and you could pay a couple of bucks extra. So... From 1920, in fact, I have a portrait shot of her from about 1923 when she was just starting out. And, you know, they always needed dress extras like this for crowd scenes where there were well-to-do people. And that's what she did. She So you can see her in Casablanca. And uh, she's even one of the med students in Frankenstein, uh, <laughs> dressed in a, in a white medical uh, thing, not a fancy gown. But, uh, you know, she worked all the time. But this is what she did, basically. Once in a while, she got more to do. She's got a lot to do in uh, Second Hundred Years. Uh, and, of course, she's got a wonderful bit in Battle of the Century, you know, where she gets hit with a pie. And then uh, and, and we na- and we now know that she had a title saying Home James um, and she and uh, to bring it also to Anita Garvin. She's in the film A Pair of Tights, uh, which starred Anita Garvin and Marion Byron as sort of a female Laurel and Hardy. And there is a moment where Marion Byron has put four ice cream cones on the seat of this uh, limousine for for want of a better place to put them. And then while Marion is looking at something else, uh, here comes Eleanor Vandeveer, the owner of the limousine. And unknowingly, she sits on these four ice cream cones and she has this wonderful expression where she's not quite sure what has happened, but she knows that it's not good. (laughs) And then Marion Byron comes back to get the ice cream cones and she sees this very imposing lady looking at her staring at her and it's like oh dear <laughs> you know it's, it's a bad moment for both of them but a very uh, eleanor could be very very funny you know she wasn't just someone who could stand there she she understood how to play up a scene and how to make it work she doesn't really get an opportunity to do that much in this picture but she's the perfect person to have in this movie as one of the guests uh especially because uh, Mr. and Mrs. Culpepper are supposed to be uh, novu riche, you know, people who have just somehow come into money. I suspect that in early 1928, there were probably a lot of people that, thanks to the stock market, uh, suddenly had these fortunes, which wouldn't last long, of course. <laughs> they, they, they'd all evaporate by October of 1929, but for for the moment, they were living very high on the hog, you know, uh, kind of like kind of like S. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, country boy who uh, suddenly made it big with a couple of big novels, and now he's in Paris and doing all this stuff, and then the crash happens, and goodbye opulence, you know. Uh, so so that this is a uh, there are some Laurel and Hardy films which very much mirror their time. And, and and I think this film and uh, We Fall Down are are the Roaring Twenties Laurel and Hardy movies. Uh, just just as One Good Turn is the Great Depression Laurel and Hardy movie. Uh, Absolutely. You know, and then you might yeah. say Jitterbugs is the 1940s uh, <laughs> yeah. Laurel yeah, and Hardy yeah. picture. Yeah, but but you know this from Soup to Nuts would not have been made in 1932. 
You know, this, yeah. I mean, this is a, 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 a roaring 20s era movie when, when people had money and when studios had money. <laughs> yes. But, but yeah, the, 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 we should probably segue into uh, uh, Anita and Tiny as the Culpeppers. I, do, I, don't think, I don't think they ever do uh, explain, uh, I'm trying to remember now, if they explain how they got their money. But anyway, they're, they're newly rich anyway. Uh, and and it's glad it's a good thing that they uh, plant that at the beginning of the film because that is what sets up Anita's insecurity. You know, she right. she yeah. is not part of this world. This is something new. And you know, the very first shots of the film are uh, Tiny Sanford saying, you know, all oh, all this uh, highfalutin stuff is uh, the bunk to me. I'd rather be on my front porch in my bare feet. Which which, <laughs> yeah. which gives you an idea of where they were before they came into this money for some reason. That's right. So it's it, yes. so again, character is king in Hal Roach movies, and and you know they're not just cardboard rich people. They explain that they have recently come into money. They're not used to this, and that at least as Mister Culpepper is concerned, he doesn't want all of this opulence. Whereas whereas she does. She's a, a social climber. She you know she's seeing her moment, and she wants to become part of the of high society but she's not she doesn't uh, she's not part of it and that's why she's watching everybody else to see which spoon they pick <laughs> yeah. up and which and yeah. anita told me this you know she said you know i i'm watching everybody to see what they're doing and i'm so nervous you know yeah. this is my character you know I, I i don't know this world and i'm looking out of the corner of my eye you know oh i pick up this fork oh no that's not the right one okay uh, oh this one okay you know and she says you know and i was very aware of what that character would be going through uh how much direction also were you given for the the famous fruit cocktail bit in from soup nothing, to nuts? nothing i would just tell what uh, you know that i'm trying to get this cherry and uh and i don't know what instrument to use that that was about it and uh so, so you more or less just built yeah, it up? Yeah, or you just kind of, you know, and I'd go pick up one thing and look at somebody who's picking up what, and then yeah. I put it down, got something else, and I'm still wrong. And, uh, and the thing with the cherry around the plate, the tiara starts falling. And How did you manage to get that uh, tiara to I fall? I think I did my head a little, just a little thing. It was... Uh, uh, Set on there so that just a little nod, I think, would do it. I thought maybe it had a string on it, but I can't remember anybody was holding a string. I don't think so because it, it wouldn't have worked that way. Right. Yeah, and, you know, and yeah. Anita was just an incredible actress. She's she's not quite twenty two when she made this movie. Can you imagine? Right, okay. You know, she's so poised and so elegant and so mature. And, <laughs> you know, she normally would be still a college kid nowadays, you know, um, uh, and just a magnificent uh, understated performance from her. Uh, I, yeah, I'm, very subtle. Yeah. I'm so glad that, that, that of all the Laurel and Hardy uh, key supporting people, she's the one that I got to meet. Because because even before I knew that she was still alive, she was always my favorite. And and the reason being that she was the one who knew how to get laughs, like Jack Benny. You know, the less you do, the funnier it is. Uh, or even to some degree, Buster Keaton. Uh, uh, you know, the other Laurel and Hardy supporting players, if you think about it, are very 
melodramatic, theatrical, florid. You have you have Jimmy Finlayson with the squints and the the outsized physicality. You have Edgar Kennedy, who's sort of the the reverse of it in trying to hold everything in. But even so, it finally does explode. You know, it's. Uh, and then you have Charles Middleton, who's right out of, you know, a melodrama. He's got the mortgage and he's this type of, you know, I'll get you people. You know, he's very theatrical. <laughs> yes. And Walter yeah. Long, you know, I'll get you guys. You know, he's and Richard <laughs> Kramer, you know, everybody is and May Bush. You know, even the women, they're all very explosive. Um, this yes. is also yeah. why I love George Marshall in Pack Up Your Troubles. Yeah, that, that movie is chock full of bad guys. There's just more villains in that movie than any other Laurel and Hardy picture. And yet the one yeah. who's the most effective is the one who says, so you a couple of snitchers. <laughs> snitches. And next time yeah. I see you, I'll have my knife. And you just go, oh, God, the blood <laughs> ran cold. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. he's so good in doing he's so very little. Good. Uh He's, he's more effective that way. He's more threatening that way. So just the uh, same thing with Anita Garvin. She she knew how to get a lot of laughs out of doing very little. For example, at one point where her tiara, tiara falls, when she picks it up, she's already has her eyes open and she's looking at you. She she doesn't do what you would normally do, which would be, you know, do and then, then look around. She's she just lifts it up with one move and she's already looking at you. And 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 the elegance of the of the move and the symmetry of the move and the fact that she's already got her expression, that's what gets the laugh, you know. Uh, and I, I I asked her. I said, you know, were you directed that way? And she said, no. She said, I just figured that, you know, if you're on the stage, you have to act more broadly because even with front row seats, you're still people only see you and as an inch tall, even if they're you know that close to you. She said, in the movies, you're magnified hundreds of times. She said, so she said, if it were a a a master shot where you see everybody head to toe and you see what's around us, I would play it a little more broadly. If it's a medium shot, I'd scale it down. And if it were a close-up, all I had to do was think it and it would register. Uh and and that's what Anita Garvin does. And it's it's so it's such a lovely counterpoint to all the mayhem going on around her that she does these, even, even though she's being frustrated beyond belief with this stupid cherry on top of the fruit <laughs> cocktail, uh, yeah. you know, which, and by the way, it's very interesting to com uh, compare that uh, bit of the gag or that element of the gag, that working of the gag to the way that Stan does it a few years, a few pictures earlier in the second hundred years. Now, now, when Stan does it, he clambers, he goes from guest to guest to guest, uh, chasing the yeah. cherry and practically clambers on top of the table and, you know, really plays yeah. it for all it's worth. I think Anita actually gets even more mileage out of it, just keeping to herself, you know. I also love the moment where Stan is looking at her frustration and he says, ah, just a moment. And Stan actually gets a very good idea where he takes a, a, a glass and upends the fruit cocktail and boom, there comes the chair and he says, see, here you are. And then Anita does this wonderful reaction like, ah, oh, why didn't I think of that? It's, just, it's a <laughs> yeah. beautiful, beautiful moment, you know. She just says, ah, oh, thank you so much. And it, 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 it warms her character up so much. You know, she's not an ogre. She, she's she may be the social climber, but she's a nice person underneath it, you know, and that, underneath, that's, that's, that's right. a little moment that, that really conveys that. And then of course, and then of course she's about to, 
you know, slurp the cherry up in the glass and Stan slaps her on the back and the tear goes down <laughs> and she, she drops the glass and it spills out onto the table again. So she's back to square one. So, you know, and that's that too. Think about how she had to work with props. A lot of comedians don't work well with props. You know, uh, uh, a lot of comedians, uh, 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 stand-up comedians uh, would, would started to smoke cigars because they didn't know what to do with their hands. You know, so <laughs> physicality does not always come easy to people who want to be funny. But she she works brilliantly with them. And uh, I mean, she's basically what she's got to work with is a spoon and a fruit cocktail. And OK, you need to be funny, you know, and. Boy, is she, you know, so uh, just a, a magnificent. And I, I asked her about the tiara. She said, I, I said, was there a wire on there or something? She said, no, no, no. I just I was able to position it so that I knew, you know, how far I had to shake my head to make it fall over my eyes. You know? So that, too, that's something else that's intuitive, you know. It's perfectly done. Yeah, yeah perfectly so, done. Uh, anyway, she was brilliant. And I'm, I'm so glad that I, I got to meet her in, I think it was 1978 was when I met her. And, okay, uh, tell us about that. Yeah, yeah tell us, how, how did you actually first come to meet uh, Well, Anita? she, I don't know how Bob Satterfield got an address for her. Um, she was married to a guy named Clifford Red Stanley, who uh, back in the 20s had been a star uh, trombonist, singer, and eccentric dancer with a dance band called Irving Aronson and His Commanders. Uh, about whom I have written at length. Uh, there are uh, there will be a, a four uh, CDs coming out on them, uh, two of which are already out. One is about to come out, and I've written the booklet notes for them all. Uh, and Clifford was a key part of that band uh, because they did a floor show and they were they were a full contained unit. They weren't just a band; they they did comedy as well. And he was a key member of this band. Um, they got married in uh, Anita and Red got married in 1930, which is why her film career kind of tapers off after that. She wanted to be a, I wanted to be an old married lady, but Stan kept calling me back, you know? <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, uh, uh, Anita had been in pictures for several years before this. She had uh, worked actually with Stan when he was doing the, the uh, pictures with Joe Rock. Uh, she was in one called the sleuth and she was supposed to be in one called the Snowhawk. There's a still of her in in her, with him in that, even though she doesn't have yeah. any footage in what survives. Um, she made pictures of all sorts of people. She made a film with Greta Garbo. Uh, you know, she was quite a, a busy actress and uh, had her own series for a while. They only made three pictures, but they're all very good. Uh, Anita and Marion Byron as a sort of a female Laurel and Hardy, uh, particularly a pair of tights. And that's an, that's another film where she has a wonderful moment basically doing nothing where uh, Edgar Kennedy and uh, Stuart Irwin have come over to be uh, the boys dates, uh, the girls dates. And um, so Edgar Kennedy is sitting there very awkwardly next to Anita and she's just looking at him, just staring at him. And he's getting more and more flustered and nervous as she does nothing but just look at him and, and <laughs> Edgar, because they don't know each other. And finally Edgar turns to her and says, well, how are you? And she says, hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so they go on their big date at an ice cream parlor. Uh, which, right. And by the way, Laurel and Hardy were supposed to be in that movie, and in fact were in that movie. They actually did shoot footage for it. But uh, 
uh, as written in the script, they sort of commandeered the whole story and took the emphasis away from the girls. And so it's really a, a, a better thing that they weren't in the picture, but it would be nice to have the footage. I wish that survived. Uh, anyway, Anita was an accomplished comedian, even at this early age of, uh, you know, not quite 22 when she made From Soup to Nuts. And uh, so I got to meet her because Bob Satterfield somehow came into contact with Clifford Red Stanley and Anita Garvin Stanley and invited, uh, uh, I guess he didn't know that, that, that uh, Red was still alive because he wrote to Anita. And as Anita said, she invited me to a banquet, a Sons of the Desert banquet. And uh, it, the letter said, if there is a Mr. Stanley, he is welcome too. And she said, that's, that's what got me to, to come out because, you know, she, she had really been a, a mystery figure for many, many years. Nobody knew where she was. And so uh, around 1978, she came to a Sons of the Desert meeting and uh, somehow my friend Jordan R. Young also found out where she was and asked if he could do an interview with her for the Los Angeles times. And so she said, well, okay. And so I, I drove. <laughs> I said, I, said, I want to be there for this, you know. So I have snapshots, beautiful color snapshots from our first meeting. They lived in Camarillo, which was quite a bit north of, of us. It's about 100 miles north of us. They had a nice uh, um, mobile home of basically not a trailer, but, uh, you know, a modular home. Um, she and Red. And this was fall of 1978. She was adorable. She answered all of our questions. Um, and uh, she was still instantly recognizable. Uh, she at that time was wearing her hair in sort of a uh, uh, Louise Brooks uh, uh, style or uh, uh, Colleen Moore, uh, except it was it was beautiful silver hair now, uh, but facially just instantly recognizable as Anita. She hadn't changed a bit, and uh, so we you know began a friendship from that point on. And she began coming regularly to Sons of the Desert functions. Um, she even came out to my little tent in Orange County. Uh, and she insisted on driving herself. She, you know, uh, this is uh, <laughs> uh, this is after Red had passed away. Red died in um, the spring of 1980, uh, so he was only alive for about a year and a half after we first met them. Um, and I really wish I had done an in-depth interview with him, but uh, because I would have had many things to ask him too. But he was very deferential. He would just say, "Well, I'm going to go read in my room. I'll, you know, you guys have fun, you know." And uh, and of course, we hadn't interviewed Anita yet first either, and so she was of paramount importance yeah. to us. So that's why I, I never yeah. really got read, unfortunately. But uh, yes, but yeah, I, you know, when she was going to do our meeting in Orange County, I said, "Well, I'll I'll come uh, to Camarillo and get you." And she said, "No, no, 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 I'll I'll drive." You know, I said, "If yeah, it's a hundred <laughs> miles each way, said, no, no problem." You know, so she drove her little yeah. red Honda Civic out to Orange County. You know, and. We did. We did put her up at a nice hotel. We did do that for her overnight, and we bought her meals, you know. And uh, but uh, she, you know, she was very generous to fans and very, you know, uh, enjoyed being rediscovered. And I think the Sons of the Desert really gave her a new lease on life because that came into her life, you know, a year and a half before Red died, and that really hit her hard. There would there would be there would be times when I would call her up just to check in on her, and I, I could tell she'd be been crying. And she, and she'd say, "I'm sorry, I was just having a little pity party." <laughs> wow. She seemed like such a lovely lady. I mean, you know, from the, the little video clips that are on the uh, the definitive restoration set, that is it a little super eight. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, sorry that my I'm sorry video. that my focus wasn't better there, but you know, I got what I yeah, got. No. <laughs> yeah, it was love, but I could have watched that forever. It just you know, you wanted to just go on and on. Well, 
listening to her stories yeah. is just fascinating. If, if, if we had had the technology then that we have today where you can take a phone and just keep going and going and going, there were, you know, Super yeah. 8 film was $4 a roll plus another $6 to get it developed. So that's $10 per three minutes. And I was a starving college student, so I could only afford about three or three or four rolls of film for her, you know, so... You know, you got what you got, uh, what you could afford. And, uh, you know, film was not erasable. Once it was exposed, you, that was it, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, if we had videotape or if we had uh, digital, yes, I would have hours and hours of them. I do have a lot of hours of audio tape of her uh, talking about her career. So, you know, I do have at least audio. And I keep thinking that maybe someday I'll, I'll put together an audio documentary uh, oh, you know, lovely. it, it yeah. won't be the entire magic behind the movies book. That would be taxing to to me and to anybody listening. But I think <laughs> I, I I think there might be something where it would be a succession of chapters devoted to each of these people and have them. Oh, yeah, I, I would help it along and do narration. But you'd basically be hearing them tell their story because I have the yeah. audio of them. You know. So uh, the threat vet tapes. Yeah, yeah really. That'd be great. Well, <laughs> it, the raw material is here for it to be done. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sounds amazing. But, you know, she, she stayed in sons of the desert for uh, many years uh, until she passed away in 1994. She wasn't able as much in her later years to get around because she had a, a bad heart attack at one point. Um, she had, she had moved from Camarillo to an apartment and um, it was a two story apartment. And she had a heart attack and then was never able to get up the stairs again. Uh, so after that point, she went to the motion picture home in Woodland Hills. And she was there probably for the last five or six years of her life. And uh, But that was very good for her because she lived near... Um, uh, 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 several people that she'd known in the, in the, in the business. And, uh, you know, so she was able to establish old ties again. Charles Lamont was somebody who had been a friend back in the olden days. He was a, a comedy director. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, I, and a friend of ours named Steve Randizi uh, would often come and visit her there and have lunch with her. She was still very lively and still, you know, if she was physically frail, she was still, very uh, boisterous in terms of her personality and, you know, love to tell stories. And then uh, as, as Richard Band says in his commentary for uh, uh, battle of the century, that's on the, the definitive restoration set over the, the footage of Leo, the lion roaring, he says, now, if Anita Garvin were here today and I wish she were, she would be saying same to you fella. <laughs> 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 so she she did oh. have that sense of humor uh you know she was not she was not a shrinking violet um and uh, uh so uh, and she was you know happy to participate in uh on stage functions at sons of the desert uh, banquets and conventions and things you know she 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 still had that that much of a need to perform you know uh, I mean, if 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 you're that determined, she was what 11 years old when she was a Ziegfeld showgirl. You know, yes. <laughs> uh, I mean that's that's someone who's very determined to get somewhere in the yes. world and who wants to be on the stage. Well, that that doesn't entirely go away with old age, you know. So she, yeah. So anyway, she was a delight to know, and uh, I knew her from 1978 until she passed away in 1994, and uh, she just a, a cherished memory to me, and I'm glad that I do have letters and photographs and uh, and uh, you know audio tape of her and whatever film i have so, yeah that's lovely yeah. that's really nice nice memories to have um what's your favorite film with uh, anisa in randy 
Oh, well. Well, what do you think she's best in, let's this, say? This is a wonderful film. It's probably the one that's the, the best showcase for her, but the the next one would be Blotto. Yes, uh, yeah. I mean, she's just magnificent yeah. in that. Uh, she, as, as brilliant as Laurel and Hardy are with their laughing, once mm. again, she is the understated counterpoint Yes. Whatever, whatever that's big and chaotic that's going on, you go to Anita, who's just doing yep. very little, but you know that she's smoldering, and you know what's going on yes. inside of her, and that gets yep. an even bigger laugh. The fact that she's not shrieking, going, "What are you doing?" You know, and all that. Yes, she's just yeah. going, "What I'm going to do to you?" You know, <laughs> oh, and, she, and she's tapping her fingers yeah, on she, that on that gun. Yeah, she tapped, she's tapping her fingers. She, she's just she's just looking and looking, and she says, and she says, "Weren't they brilliant?" She says, "It was all I could do to keep from laughing while they were doing that." I bet. And, oh, I uh, bet. Yeah. The other thing about that film too is when you look at the foreign language versions, it's new footage of them doing that routine again. It's it's not yeah, the same footage, yeah. and and they're just as brilliant in other performances. But it proves that it was a performance. Yes, and so it just it proves that Laurel and Hardy were brilliant actors too, along with Anita Garvin. Yeah, no, I I I I love her little moment with uh, Jean de Briac, the proprietor of the gun shop, (laughs) and she she says, "How much is that big gun?" And he says, "Oh, the one with the double barrels." She says, "And I want a box of bullets too." <laughs> and then she knocks somebody over on the way out as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Drive us, drive us anywhere, any place. And the Charlie Charlie Hall has the big handlebar mustache and the top hat, like he's a a, a, a cab cabbie in in Victorian London, you know, in this taxi. And you know, she knocks a guy over as she's barreling out of the nightclub. Yeah, oh, Rain, the Rainbow Club. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's wonderful very, very little touches good. like that. And again, she she found ways to imbue her character with something that made it more than what it would have been on paper or what it would have been by, with any other actress. You yes. Know? Yeah. A good, a good one is um, why girls love sailors. The first. Oh yes. Film the yeah. And we never, we never even knew she was in it and she's very prominent. Yeah. 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 And that seething look with that face at the porthole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. And then this blunderbuss comes out. Fabulous. Right. And, and yeah, she's, fabulous. and she's very good in sailors beware. Uh, yes, as, course, as, as yeah. the jewel thief, yeah. Uh, a lot of her films are not as well known as they ought to be because she she did a lot very early on. She also did a lot of work with Charlie Chase, and um, she said Charlie Chase always put me in a blonde wig for some reason. He liked me better as a blonde, so that was her key memory of him. But uh, but yeah, she, no, she a uh, very talented actress and talented beyond her years because she's very young, and you you wouldn't think that she would have that kind of intuition about how to play comedy. Uh, but, you know, again, she'd already been in the business for five or six years before she came to Laurel and Hardy. So, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, there's a, it's just unbelievable. To, you know, that we're talking about these, these absolutely <laughs> classic films and classic moments. And you're there sitting, talking to the person that was in the films yeah. with the boys talking about them laugh. Just unbelievable. I, just can't, I can't, I can't get my head around yeah. it. It's just wonderful. I, wonderful. I would have times when I just, I could feel my head spinning. You know, one in particular was um, Felix Knight, who played Tom Tom in Babes in Toyland. Now, I I never physically met him because he was in New York and I'm out here in Southern California. But I I did a phone interview with him and uh, uh, I I called him. I was I was a timid kid. I was a timid college kid. And I hated cold calling these people, these show business veterans who didn't need a, a 20 year old kid asking them about what they'd done 50 years earlier, you know, 
But as it turns out, most of them were flattered that a 20-year-old kid was interested in what they'd done 50 years earlier. But anyway, I, I was going to call Felix Knight to set up an interview. And just in case I had my questions at the ready, in case he said, let's do it now. Well, I call him. I said, Mr. Knight, uh, I'm, I'm, my name is Randy Scretfit. I'm working on a, a research project about Laurel and Hardy. And if you have time at some point in the near future, I'd love to talk to you about your work in Babes in Toyland. He says, well, I'm just watching a ball game. We can do it now. <laughs> okay, well, good thing I had my questions, you know. But the That's thing it, was, yeah. he was a vocal coach. And he knew how to take care of his voice. And his voice sounded exactly as it did as Tom Tom in 1934. Now, I'm talking to him in 1980. And he sounded, I, I was talking to, you know, I wasn't seeing him. So the mental image I have is Tom Tom Piper. And he sounds just like, you know, it's not, it's not some old man talking about what I did 50 years earlier. It's, you know, yes, I did the film in 1934. Da, 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 da. You know, I'm going, God, I'm talking to Tom Tom, you know. You know I feel like Charlotte Henry. You know, what's going on here? Oh, he'd have to be most unusual, energetic, resourceful, and with any amount of patience. A fellow sort of, uh, well, like me. So there were those moments, you know, um, where where you really had to just it was just amazing. I, I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary series Hollywood that Kevin Brownlow did about the silent era. Yeah. Long time ago. Yeah, but yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he got some amazing interviews and those those were all done in 1977. I have some going back a little farther than that. But there's one in particular with Blanche Sweet. Now, Blanche Sweet started very early in the picture business. She's only about 12 or 14 years old when she made a picture called The Battle of Elderbrush Gulch, I think, with D.W. Griffith in 1912. But here she is in 1977, and she's talking just like this. She's not encumbered by age at all. She's just perfectly fine, and she's talking about 1912, you know. Well, you know, when Mr. Griffith was there with Billy Bitzer, we were doing this back in the day, you know, like, this is... 65 years ago that she's talking about and 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 she's talking as if it happened yesterday you know once once in a while you would get you know really lucky like that not always some sometimes you get people say oh that was also long ago you know I, I learned to always take pictures with me if I were going to see somebody physically always always take pictures or any visual cues because then they would go they go oh yeah now i remember this guy was so and so and so and so and it would prompt stories so uh but i never had to do that with anita though she you know she she always had a very very clear memory of and these are things that she never saw you know you have to remember she was busy either going to the next picture or afterwards she was raising her kids a lot of the films that she made with laurel hardy she didn't see until she was in sons of the desert good grief you know? that's incredible and she she, she yeah. told me she said uh they never let us go to the previews they never let actors go to the previews for the reason being that if any of our footage had to be cut out they didn't want our feelings to be hurt you know if if, if, if we didn't go over you know it would be cut out, but they didn't want us to know about it. And and she she said, I did look at the dailies. And and she said, I remember when talkies were coming in, I was doing a picture with Clark and McCullough at Fox. And it was my first sound film. And she said, you know, I'm wondering, you know, how am I going to sound? I have no idea. And she says, the sound comes on and I'm talking and I'm lisping all over the place. 
<laughs> every sound, lifting everything, everything is lift, 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 lift. I thought, oh my God, my whole career, everything is going to go down the drain. But she said, but then the next actor came on and he too was lift, 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 and everything was lift. And I went, oh, phew. And she said, I realized it was the sound recording and it wasn't me. But she said, but for a few moments there, I could see everything I'd worked for just going Your right down the tubes, over. you know? So that was her first initial experience with uh, with uh, talkies. She, I also remember her talking about um, Henry Ginsburg, who was installed by the Bank of America to to oversee uh, or to speed up the production and to to minimize costs at the Hal Roach Studios. This is in 1931, yes. and she said uh, Stan called him the expediter. <laughs> yes, yes, and she said. She said, you know, Laurel and Hardy did not like somebody telling them to rush things along. They wanted to get it right. They they didn't take an inordinate amount of time. As you know, Stan Laurel liked to get things the first time because he liked the magic of the first take. He thought there was a spontaneity to the first time that you wouldn't get in subsequent takes. But Henry Ginsburg just wanted it. You know, I don't want a good, I want a Tuesday. And so she said, so whenever he would come down to the set, Stan would slow everything way down until Ginsburg would get the <laughs> message and leave. So that was his way of, you know, being passively aggressive uh, toward Henry Ginsburg. She remembered that very well. And she also remembered, she said, you know, when, when you uh, when you played a scene with Laurel and Hardy, you, you didn't have to really there wouldn't be your dialogue generally wouldn't be written out anyway. You would get you would get the gist of the scene and you would just do it, you know, just understanding what you had to convey in that shot. Uh, so, yeah. you know, basically we're coming up with our own dialogue for the most part. It's not written down. And it's true. You know, when you see the scripts, they're more like what we would now call treatments. You know, only only in very specific instances do they ever show the dialogue. Otherwise, it's, you know, Anita gets over that she wants to go to Atlantic City, you know, and yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's yeah. up to you to, to get it over. But that's what the script wants. And you'll say it better than I will write it, you know, is basically the the attitude. So she she had she said, you know, the other comedy lots were very nice, but the road studio was special. And she said, you know, it had a warmth and a family atmosphere. And it was, you know, the other places were fun, but the Roach Studio was really, really special. And she says, I, you know, I can't tell you the, the fond memories that I have of that place. You know, it was just such a joy to work mm. there. So, yeah, that's you know, she retained that for the rest of her days. Yes. So it was a lot of fun. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I, think, I Fantastic. think we probably covered it from soup to nuts. I think we did. I think we've gone from soup to nuts, yeah. Absolutely. And and a, and a big gooey cake for dessert on the side. <laughs> or three. Or three. Yes, there we go. <laughs> brilliant. That's brilliant. Randy, thank you ever so much for uh, for spending this time with sure. us again. It's been it's been wonderful. Um I have you down for wrong again. I've got you okay. down for early to bed. All right. But I'm sure I, I'm sure we'll be in touch before that because I can't I can't uh, leave you alone for too long. So there's so much I, so I, much wonderful. I, I I can talk your ear off on virtually any film. So so, uh, you know, Fabulous. the next the next time you uh, need your hear need some hearing loss, you let me know and I'll <laughs> I'll contribute to it. <laughs> So, not at all to be honest I, I forget i forget i'm doing an interview when i'm when i'm talking to you because it's just i'm just in a different world it's just wonderful so well, thank you so thank much. thank you very that. much for giving me the opportunity i appreciate it no problem at all and we, we'll see you again soon right. thank you Take so care. much what do you think of it it's very nice brief and right to the point mm.
And there we have it, From Soup to Nuts, a great little comedy short. It's fascinating to hear Randy's thoughts on this picture, and I want to say a huge thank you to Randy for allowing us to include that small segment of his telephone interview with Anita. Um, it's always a pleasure and an honour to have these stories told by the people that were there at the time on the broadcast. So to hear Anita telling us in her own words about her part in the film is an absolute treat. Well, that certainly is big of you. And so that brings episode 16 to a tidy close. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Um, do get in touch on the Laurel and Hardy blog Facebook page or in our Blogheads Facebook group and let me know what you thought of this episode and indeed what you like or dislike about From Soup to Nuts. Thank you, as always, to the ever-entertaining Randy Scretvet uh, and to the Bohunks Orchestra, of course, for the wonderful music. Don't forget, you can find affiliate links to purchase CDs of the Bohunks music and copies of Randy's books in the podcast show notes and also on the shop page of the Laurel and Hardy blog website, too. And finally, a thousand thanks to you for listening and supporting the blogcast and the Laurel and Hardy blog in general. I can't tell you how much it means to be able to share my love for the boys with you and to hear how much you're enjoying our time together, too. Your homework for next time, should you choose to accept it, is to watch the silent short You're Darn Tootin, as our attention in episode 17 will be focused on that brilliant two-reeler. So, until next time, stay in touch, stay safe, and keep laughing. And until then, it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. Goodbye from him. Goodbye. It's goodbye from her. Goodbye, Stanley. Goodbye, Mr. Hardy. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>